Ephesians chapter 4, 31 through 32. The Apostle Paul says this. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, in light of the the text before us this morning, I just want to pray for my church family, brothers and sisters, myself included, for those of us that would feel today like we're weighed down with any sort of anger, bitterness, anxiety, worry, stress, sadness, all of those things. Lord, you know our hearts. You search them by your Holy Spirit. I pray today that the word of God would go forth from the spirit of the living God into our hearts. That you would expose the things that ought not be there. Yet you would do it the way that you do. Lord, your word says that you are kind. Your kindness leads us to repentance. So if there is a way in which we are not operating, working, living according to the image of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would just lovingly shepherd us in the right way. You know my faults, Lord. You know my tendency to miscommunicate things and to say the wrong things. I'm asking that, that today, Lord, of all days, the Holy Spirit, you would, you would shower grace in this place. Father, you would cause us to hear only those things which you want us to hear. Pray that we'd be able to leave the gathering of the church this morning reconciled to one another with a peace that surpasses comprehension. Lord, we recognize already at the outset that that is entirely impossible by ourselves. And so we submit ourselves to the word of God today, knowing that you have spoken, your people, we hear you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are uh, perhaps familiar um, with some of the recent developments in the news regarding cyclist Lance Armstrong in his interview with Oprah in which he divulged and confessed to a, a bunch of things that he He had done wrong over the period of about 14 years from uh, cheating to uh, drug use uh, and the way that he treated certain people that were in his life. And it was at that moment in this interview in which people, upon hearing the words leaving his mouth, upon hearing the confession, began to feel this utter sense of betrayal and devastation at this confession. In the aftermath, what would... What would explode in the aftermath of uh, Armstrong's confession were people who seemed to, and uh, if you were watching the news or reading anything 
saw this just explosion of hurt and angst. People who perhaps could do nothing in the aftermath of the situation but seethe with anger and pain and unforgiveness. And my purpose in bringing this up is not really to speak about Armstrong at all for or against him, but rather the people who were devastated by his actions as it came to fruition in his confession. Some of them wrote articles, one in particular who had for 14 years defended his friend Armstrong would write an article in the paper, a scathing article laced with pain in which he concluded, and I quote, I guess I should forgive him. I guess. Give me 14 years, maybe. And who can blame Who can blame these people? Anyone in this building, anyone in our church who has ever been hurt by somebody, especially to that extent, can hardly be blamed for hanging on to it. And though this is a large-scale story, and although many of us have not uh, been put through something on such a public scale, without a doubt, most of us, maybe all of us, have at some point felt some act of betrayal, Although it might not be on a public platform, perhaps the majority of us have felt that sting of shame, that sting of betrayal. Perhaps some of us have been abandoned by those who we thought would be there for the long haul. Or maybe it wasn't on such a grand scale. Maybe it was just a fleeting moment. Maybe it was on the road to church on Sunday as you were trying to get off onto the off-ramp. Someone cut you off. They wouldn't let you in. Uh, Maybe that was last week, and yet you're still thinking about that guy a week later, or that gal. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe you're a parent, and you have self-sacrificially given your everything to your son or to your daughter, and now they're teenagers, and they're not doing anything that you expected them to do. You feel it. For some reason, hurtful acts that are done against us leaves us with this sense of vulnerability. How in the world could this happen to me? That person that I love so dearly, that person that I trusted, that person that uh, I, I had opened myself up to has, su- has hurt me to such a profound sense. I, it leaves me feeling vulnerable. It leaves me feeling naked in a sense, out of control, out of control of a situation. Perhaps it leaves us being angry and unforgiving. If anything, we can salvage some sense of control, even if it just means we don't let them back into our good graces. I might not be able to seek a sense of justice. They might not get what's coming to them, but at least I can stay angry with them if there's anything I could do. I can punish those people with my thoughts. And we do. I do. I I'm notorious for this. And every single time, it backfires on me. And it will backfire on you. This is what Paul is alluding to as he gets into verse 31 of chapter 4. You remember back in verse 26, we spoke about anger and we essentially, we saw that Paul said, be angry but do not sin. Essentially, there is a right way to be angry and there is a wrong way to be angry. Being angry in itself is not a sin. There's a right way to be angry. But 
even in that particular verse, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And all throughout the testimony of Scripture, we see that even though there's a right way to be angry, the testimony of Scripture overwhelmingly says, even if there's a right way, don't stay there. Because your right way of being angry will take root, even when you don't even realize it. The glaring testimony of Scripture is that anger is a squatter. It will morph into something a whole lot bigger and monstrous than you thought originally. And it escalates. And this is what Paul is alluding to. He's giving us a trajectory of anger. It starts with your disposition. You can't even see it. You might not even feel it, but it's in there. It's your disposition. It's who you are as a person just inside there. This is what he means by bitterness. It starts off, in a sense, as a resentment over something that happens in the past. You did this to me. That happened to me. This situation didn't work. I'm holding on to it. So even if it starts out righteous, I have been wronged. Eventually, it becomes resentment. And that resentment turns into bitterness. And all of a sudden, our disposition is affected by anger. We are losing control. He goes on to speak about not just disposition, but how after we continue to entertain anger and unforgiveness and bitterness, it, it moves from our disposition to our demeanor. All of a sudden, you start to notice that it's there. Paul brings up a couple words. He speaks about rage and anger. Rage, if you want to put it this way, is if you put that pot of water on your stove to a full boil, it begins to overflow in a matter of seconds. It's abrupt. It's an explosive act of rage. Even if you don't act out on it, you just lose it. Here's what anger is, uh, at least in the way that Paul means it. It's, It's more of a slow simmer. It doesn't immediately explode. You can't even maybe see anything detectable, but it is, you're, you're mulling over something. All of a sudden, your, your disposition, which changed, starts to leak into your demeanor. You can start to see it. And from there, it just escalate, escalates excuse me, into displays of rage, anger, and bitterness. And this is what Paul means when he says shouting and slander. Unforgiveness and anger left untouched in anybody, even the Christian, even the seasoned, highly spiritual Christian, anger and unforgiveness left untouched always seem to begin to spiral out of control. And the key ingredient in that spiral is that last thing that Paul throws at us. It's malice. Malice is that thing that begins to color, to, to, to taint all of these other things. You see, shouting isn't that bad. I, I shout like 20 minutes out of every sermon, it seems like. I hope, that, I hope I'm not sinning. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not yelling at you. Just excited. <laughs> shouting isn't bad. As we saw earlier, anger in itself, per se, is not bad. But these things, at least as Paul means them, are all tainted with this sense of malice. Malice is an attitude or an action which intends to harm others. So I'm not just shouting because I'm excited. I'm, I'm shouting because you hurt me and I want to get you back somehow. I'm not just anger in a righteous sense. I'm angry because I... You upset me or a situation upset me and I want to carry out my own form of justice even if that means um, making you feel my pain. 
It's an attitude or an action which intends to harm others. It's not, necessar- it's not necessarily physical harm. Often, I'd say maybe 80, 90% of the time, at least in my own life, it takes place in my head or in my heart. I harm people with my thoughts. They might not ever know it, but I'm harming people with my thoughts. Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 5 with two things. He brought up, you know, the supposed outward awful sins that the Pharisees were nitpicking with adultery and murder. And he said, you know what, you guys, you guys think you're so holy to the Pharisees because you've never killed anybody physically and you've never committed adultery. But listen, if you've looked at someone with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And he would say the same thing about murder. You think you've never physically murdered somebody, but in your thoughts you are murdering them all day long. It's in a sense, as we entertain anger and we let it have its way with our hearts, we come to a place where we can find ourselves killing people with our thoughts, with our minds. And this comes forth, manifest in hatred. Hatred is birthed in this trajectory. The Apostle John would say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. In other words, when I become angry, I don't... The irony of this is that when I become angry, I think that I'm righting a wrong. I think that I'm doing something to that person, even if it's just that they, they have the, uh, the discomfort of knowing that I'm upset with them. I am somehow bringing justice into this situation. I am satisfying my own desire for justice, and I am getting them back. Which is entirely ironic, because it seems like I'm the only one that's getting sick off of it. I love the famous line by Anne Lamott in her book, uh, Traveling Mercies. She said, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Most of the time when I entertain thoughts about someone that's hurt me, and I, you know how you do that? You put it on instant replay, like what that person did to you, and you're like, I can't believe they did this, and I can't believe and they did this, and they did that. And you know what? I'm going to say that. I should have said this when I had the opportunity. I should have, oh, that would have, that would have burned them. That would have been awesome. I should, or you know what? I'm going to do this the next time. You know when I see them at Vaughn's in aisle nine, I'm, I'm not even going to look. And the, the thing that we do, I mean, that's silly. We get a lo- whole lot worse than that, at least I do. It's crazy where I'm, our minds go that nobody else knows. In the secrecy of our minds, we play with anger. And I'm the only one that hurts from it. Not forgiving. Unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison, thinking that the rat is going to die. And here is the real disconnect. We're not as victimized by our circumstances as we always think. You do not have to be controlled by everything else. The disconnect in all of this, the the sickness that I feel when I'm just writhing in bitterness, oftentimes has nothing to do, sometimes it does, but oftentimes has nothing to do with what people have done to me. 
It has to do with my own heart. You see, in the trajectory of our anger, of my anger, essentially the problem is I am trying to grasp for the control that I lost. I am in a sense saying to God, you know what? I am not going to trust you with this situation. I want to be sovereign over this and I will take care of these situations and these people by being angry with them. I do not trust you. I am taking the reins of sovereignty in my own life. I will walk in unforgiveness. I will deal with this person the way that I see fit. I am sovereign. That is idolatry 101. Idolatry is the sin that causes humanity to unravel, and it taints even our anger. Idolatry is us trying to act in the place of God. The irony is that the deeper we go in this trajectory of anger, the more we entertain anger and bitterness and rage and unforgiveness, we lose more control over the person that God created us and intended us to be. But because idolatry is the problem, because it's not just a, it's not as simplistic as saying, you know what, just get along. You know, someone hurt you, just get over it. You know, that doesn't work. You ever tried that? Well, thanks a lot. Because it's a lot deeper and a lot more ingrained in, in the heart of humanity than that. It's as we see idolatry, we're trying to be God, so we act out on that. By, become, by losing it, by falling into rage, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, slander. Since the problem is idolatry, only Jesus then can reconcile any broken relationship. It is not a matter of changing your behavior. It is a matter of the heart. Only Christ can bring healing to stuff like that. And that healing, by the way, does not mean that you have to forget what was done to you. The Bible does not say that to forgive someone means that you have to stay in an environment where you are being hurt. Not what it means. It means God wants to free us from the slavery of our own anger. That in addition to not being hurt by that person, we don't have to hurt ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. Only Christ can mend broken relationships, can heal broken hearts, and can take away the sting of bitterness. I was recently speaking to a lifeguard in Carpinteria about stings. We were sitting on a beach and he was telling me, uh, I think it was in the middle of September and October, which I hear is stingray season. And he was telling me that it, he has to, as a lifeguard on the beach, he has to deal with this almost every day as the beaches are crowded with people and they're running around. And he would tell me that he would see full-grown men, just Venice Beach-style men, just on the beach, just ripped, just walking around, who would just be rendered, I don't even know what the word is, they would just, just fall, screaming, because of, they got stung by a stingray. And he would say, in that moment, pain is so excruciating, it's this venom. He'd say, the only source of soothing for that person at that time is to, to take some hot water and to dump it on their wound. For some reason, the Hot water interacts with the venom or something, but whatever it is, nobody cares about the ins and outs and the technicalities of what the water does. They just want the hot water. So these lifeguards carry hot water in their little zone for such an occasion. And as soon as they pour that hot water on, it doesn't fix it immediately, but 
it begins to soothe the pain of that sting. The gospel is the salve that doesn't just soothe the pain of the sting, but takes away the pain and the sting of our sin. It is that, that salve that, uh, uh, that assuages the pain of bitterness that we just can't get away from. But before that happens, something must first be done to our disposition, that, that, that part of ourselves that anger has taken root in, and this is exactly what the gospel does. You see, the gospel is more than just, I, I find Christianity intellectually uh, agreeable, so I think I'll try that out for a, a few months. Christianity starts when your heart, your disposition has been changed by the Holy Spirit who applies the gospel in powerful form to your life. Your outlook changes. Your inward way changes. Your disposition changes. And it's supernatural. Paul just described this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, you were in some real sense dead in, uh, in your trespasses and he brought life to you. He brought you alive. He took away the sin of your trespasses and he gave you life. And it's out of that life that this healing salve of the gospel begins to work on the pain of our bitterness and of our anger and of our hurt and it begins to reconcile us. He would go on to describe this verses later, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. It's in the sense in which our disposition gets radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we begin to look at others differently. Again, it's not going back to a place of abuse. It's not going back to a place where you are taken advantage of. It's not going back to any environment where you're being hurt. You don't have to do that. However, the gospel heals us of our wounds so that we don't have to be under the control of those situations. I don't have to be dictated by the people who have hurt me in my past. That's the beauty of the gospel. And in doing so, God brings us into Christ centered community where we begin to practice this stuff with each other. As we're brought into community, we still sometimes have the tendency to be idolaters. Only we might do it with community itself. Here's two things that we commonly do with community. One is we romanticize community. We had one idol, but now we've made an idol out of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. He was a, a German pastor during pre-war Germany. Figuring out at one point in his life, how do I hoist up the love of Christ in the midst of the hatred of the Nazis? And he would Read by conviction in the scriptures while it is a life spent together by the blood of Jesus Christ. He would write a book called Life Together, explaining basic Christian community. And in a section of this book, he would write, you know what? We still make idols out of community. And he would write this. It's a lengthy quote. I'll just read it for you. 
He said, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream, wishful thinking. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with them a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He's saying, we, be, we bring our baggage into our Christian walk. We take church and we make it this ideal thing. If, oh, I'm going to get saved. I'm going to become a part of this church. Nobody's ever going to do anything against me. It's like this uh, hoopla Disneyland place and everybody's going to be perfect and do everything that I want. Nobody's going to hurt me. And we're strangely disappointed. In other words, community is no functional savior. You'll find after a short while of being a part of a local church that you're surrounded by people who still hurt you. Relationships take work because people in those relationships are not perfect. That's why we must not idolize church or community or any of those things, but we must worship Jesus in community. Second thing we romanticize is Jesus himself. Here's what I mean by that. We sign up for something like this, for Christianity 101 or church or whatever, spirituality, thinking that we are worshiping Christ when in reality he's more of a genie. He's that which is going to make all my problems disappear. My marriages, my relationships, my kids will come back and obey me and do everything that I want and go to the college that I wish they would go to and stop talking back to me. I'll get the job that I always wanted, my dream job. I'll make all of this money. The economy will get better. All of these things will line up as, as soon as I cling to Jesus. Might not happen. We sometimes think that if we cling to Christ, our relationships will just turn into a breeze. How many of you? upon clinging to Christ, have noticed it's gotten a little more difficult in some areas. And that's not strange. You're not lacking in faith because you struggle in relationships. The Apostle Paul struggled with relationships. He's kind of an important dude. Oh, he had some relational drama. Let me tell you about it. Paul and Mark. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 38. It says, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word and see how new believers are doing. Yeah! Barnabas agreed, yeah! And wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted him in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Does this, I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I love Paul. But doesn't this sound like just... Uh, like a high school drama? <laughs> I could be totally wrong. I don't know the, the background story. Maybe Mark did something awful. Paul's got his reasons. But just, just from the surface, I mean, it's like, oh, you got to take Mark for. That guy bummed me out the other day. Came over. He didn't have my back. 
He bailed on me. I was in this difficult situation. He didn't have my back. Everyone's got my back. I'm the apostle, bro. I don't know if you know, people got my back. Peter got my back. James got my back. The Gentiles got my back. The Jews got my back. Jesus got my back. I've gotten beaten on my back. I don't have a cloak on my back. I gave that away. I've got the weight of the churches on my back. Barnabas, you even have my back. Mark, don't have my back. I don't want to travel with him. Listen to the next couple verses. It just gets worse. Verse 39 and verse uh, 40. Paul and Barnabas, their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Separated? Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas as he left. The believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care. Well, that's a nice way to end the subject. (laughs) But right before that, Barnabas is like, you know what? No, dude. Mark's my bro. I never leave my bros. Paul's like, fine, I'm going to take Silas. I'm going to go over here. You go that way, I'll go this way. See you at the end of the earth. And they separate. He might have his reasons. I don't want to judge. But the point being, Paul and Mark, Paul and Barnabas, they had relational drama. Paul and Peter, whoa. Let me just read you a line from Paul's mouth himself. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. Peter had gotten the gospel wrong. And what he was preaching and the life he was living was causing uh, destructive drama to the the salvation and to uh, uh, implications in the life of the church of the Gentiles. And Paul confronted him. He was good to do that. But... Paul confronts Peter. Paul confronts Barnabas. Paul confronts Mark. These are spirit-filled, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, gospel-preaching men of God who struggle with relationships. If they did, we're going to too. And that's okay. It won't be easy. It won't be easy until Christ himself comes back and writes everything that was wrong. And he will. Until that point, we must, as we learned in Ephesians 4.3, preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit with the peace that binds us. Meaning, the Holy Spirit is bringing unity based on the peace that binds us. We yield to it. You know what that peace is? It refers to that inner peace that we get from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We let the gospel bind us together as the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do so. This is exactly, I I couldn't put it any better than the, the... Old Puritan John Owen, who wrote a book, he wrote a book on the mortification of sin in Christians. He has a chapter ask, uh, answering the question, how does the Holy Spirit get rid of sin in the Christian? It's, it's this way. He brings the cross of Christ into the hearts of a sinner by faith. He doesn't sprinkle you with fairy dust. He doesn't erase all of your problems. He doesn't even make it easier. He brings a deeper realization of the gospel into your heart. He makes the gospel more real to you. Now that tells me something about my own twisted heart. When I struggle with unforgiveness, when I struggle with bitterness, and I do, it tells me that in some way, I have lacked a certain amount of apprehension of God's forgiveness towards me. If it's the gospel that causes me to grow in forgiveness, when I refuse to grow in forgiveness, I have somehow disconnected myself from the truth and the realization of the gospel. Here's what I mean. 
when God brings us into a covenant community like this, you're part of a local church, the body of Christ, we, we share life together, we exude Christ together, we often sin against one another, we make mistakes. In the body of Christ, we are to view each other as Christ views us through the lens of the cross. Meaning, there will be times where you sin against me. There will be times where I let you down and disappoint you. And we are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. We are to view each other through the lens of the cross. Paul would say to the Corinthians, I view no one through the flesh anymore. Only through Christ. Because you are in Christ. So if we are bitter, at some point in our lives, we have, even if we never would say this vocally, we have looked at the cross and found it to be insufficient. If I'm still holding you in a place of bitterness, if I'm still holding unforgiveness of you, I am saying the cross is insufficient to reconcile. I will take this into my own hands and I'm going to do it by anger and holding stuff against you and drama and uh, the weight of my wrath and that will bring justice. The cross was not sufficient enough for that. Because you still want people to pay for what they did to you. I still want people to pay for how they hurt me so I'm angry at them. I give them the silent treatment. I don't talk to them. I think stuff about, as Jesus would so vividly, uncomfortably say, kill them in my mind. The New Testament tells us that that trajectory of anger, now we still fall into it from time to time, But that trajectory of anger is impossible for the Christian to stay in. You'll tumble into it at times, but it's impossible for a Christian to stay there. When Paul says, put these things away, put the bitterness away, put uh, the, the wrath and the anger away, put those things away, all of that in malice, he's actually speaking in the past tense. It comes out beautifully in the NASB. Let those things be put away. In other words, there's an element of what Christ has done. He has broken the chains of bondage in the life of the Christian. And Paul is simply saying, yield to what has already been accomplished in you. If we cannot yield, if we are enslaved to bitterness, to unforgiveness, to anger against one another, perhaps, And this is a very real question we could be asking ourselves, perhaps because at the very deepest part of who we are in our our deep disposition, it's because we are still trying to pay for our own sins. We don't believe that God can or maybe should forgive others for what they've done to us because we have not fully grasped how he has forgiven us. We're still paying for our sins. We're still expecting others to pay for theirs. The only way out of that The only way out of that spiraling, awful, horrific tunnel is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what makes these two two verses different than any other excerpt of religious moralism you have ever heard. And you've heard a lot, right? Stop doing that, do that. You know, get a little better at your life. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop being a bad person. Be a better person. Be a good Christian. Pray a lot. Read your Bible. Get better. Improve your life. You know what makes this different? Because it sounds the same, right? Get rid of bitterness. Walk in love. You know what makes this different than any other claim on humanity? The last line. Let me read it. 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Here it is. This is what we live for. Just as God also forgave you in Christ. There's the gospel in one sentence. Because God forgave Chris Lazo in Christ, meaning he forgave me of my sin against him. Because God justified me, even though I didn't deserve it. Because he absolved me of everything I've done against him and against you. Because he didn't just stop there, but he adopts me as his son. I'm not just commanded to, but I am now able to look at you differently. I'm able to look at my enemies differently. I'm able to look at people who have let me down differently. I am able at least, I might not get it perfect, but I am able to at least walk in a a new direction in which I am able to show them forgiveness, meaning I can absolve them of the wrong that they have done me. I can show compassion, which is a, a desire to alleviate the pain of those who wronged you. So you're not just letting people off the, uh, off the chain. You're not just saying, you know, that, that's cool, man. But now, compassion, do you know how gnarly compassion is? You're not just forgiving them of what they've done to you, but you desire to alleviate their pain. Oh, it doesn't stop there. You know what kindness is? We have another word for kindness. It's benevolence. It's doing good towards In this context, it's doing good towards those who have wronged you. If I may be so blunt, this is absolutely absurd, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only am I to forgive people who have wronged me, but I'm to look to alleviate their pain and do good towards them. This will never, ever, ever happen apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have been too hurt. Some of you have been hurt. You've been wounded in ways I can't even imagine. And we have to remember that the issue is not necessarily the circumstances. It's not necessarily our behavior. We can't just modify behavior or forget things. The issue is that our hearts sometimes are enslaved to sin and idolatry. Here's what the gospel does. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. We know now that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be enslaved to anger anymore. I cannot say I can change what other people have done to you now or in the future, but I can say the power of the gospel says that you do not have to be enslaved by your circumstances. You don't have to be enslaved to anger. You don't have to be ruled by bitterness in the late night. You don't have to wake up in the morning depressed because of a situation that has transpired. You can be free from those things. Do you ever feel like you're still enslaved? Like, man, I'm a a Christian saved by the gospel, but I I feel so entangled, embroiled in some of the stuff that happened like 10 years ago. Some of you simply need to relive your forgiveness in Christ and bask in your identity in God. You'll never be free from anger towards others until you have understood how God has lavishly forgiven you. And until then, it's going to eat away at me, you, and the people around you. I want to end this morning with a short story. 
about myself, actually. A few weeks ago, a few of the pastors at Reality and myself went onto a hill for a day to just pray and, and fast and really with just the point of, of setting ourselves before the Lord and being like, hey, Lord, you know, you know our hearts. Search our, search our anxious thoughts and our wayward hearts and see if there's any, anything wayward uh, in us. Is there anywhere where we need to repent? We, wanna, we want those things to be exposed. And You know, sometimes big group prayer meetings can often, often start very casual and surfacey at first. You know, Lord, save me from my thoughts. and Lord, forgive me for not something. I was there in that place just calling out ambiguities in my personal life. And I remember we had been praying through Hebrews chapter 12. And at one point, uh, Chad, one of the pastors in uh, Ventura at the Ventura campus, began to recite Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15. Let me read it for you. It says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and by it defiling many. I remember as I was sitting on that couch as Chad was just casually reading this passage and I was casually sitting on the couch. As soon as he read the word bitterness, something absolutely unbelievable happened to me. I can't really describe what it was except to say that as soon as he physically mouthed the word bitterness, my head, my mind was flooded with imagery. It was imagery of one, one guy. It was a, an old friend who had wounded me, who had done some things years ago to, to hurt me. And I thought I had let it go, you know. I thought I, I had forgiven him and it was cool and whatever. Apparently not. This imagery began to flood my mind as the word of God was read. The Holy Spirit flooded my heart with all of the hurt and all of the pain that began to surface to the top. And I, I just kept seeing him. And in that moment, I began to weep almost uncontrollably. My friends laid, their, laid hands on me and began to pray for me. And in that moment, I, I can tell you, man, it felt as if the presence of the Holy Spirit descended upon us in that little room. And it was slightly uncomfortable. It felt like the holiness of God. At one point, Pastor G was like, man, you guys want to take a breath and leave the room and get some fresh air? And we all left. And it reminded me of that passage in Chronicles where it says that the priests could not bear to stand because of the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit broke me of my sin, a sin that I didn't even know I had at the time until the gospel broke forth in my heart. I repented, called the guy up, ate lunch with him, repented of my sins, and felt an overwhelming sense of joy and the peace and the presence of God. And I can only describe it in the words of, if I might borrow the words of the great Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
I decided in that moment that I do not want the light of my conversion, which happened years ago, to be momentary and singular. I want what happened at my conversion for the light of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to apply the healing salve of the gospel to my heart repeatedly. When I am 90 years old, I want to be swimming in the realization that God has been gracious to me. You'll never be free from anger towards others until you have drunk deeply from the fountain of God's mercy until the cross of Jesus Christ becomes for you blazingly glorious. Until you realize, until I realize, until we realize, I am Lance Armstrong. I have fallen short of the glory of God and I have sinned against God my maker. I have fallen short of his glorious standard and Christ has condescended to my lowliness. Do you believe that? Once you start believing that, it will be a healing salve. I want to ask you this last question. I once told you I would never preach to you or ask of you anything that I wasn't willing to do for myself. And so now I ask you, is there any bitterness amongst us? If there is, I want, you to sh- I want to show you the source of healing. As a believer, you'll start to notice that the Holy Spirit will begin to grieve inside of you. And when he grieves, yield to whatever he tells you to do. This can only happen through the power of the gospel. So as we sing this morning, let the power of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit, fixate our eyes on a Jesus who saves. Holy Spirit, come now. Help us, Lord. The word says that you're already here. Christ dwells among the churches by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're already here. So perhaps instead of asking you to be here, I should ask that you would make us aware of your presence. Thank you for my family here, Lord. Brothers, dear brothers and sisters in Christ who you have saved out of darkness. I pray, Lord, now that you would begin to dig deep into the caverns of our hearts where we hide all that unspoken stuff. You begin to pull it out. We know that it'll probably hurt, but God, we know that that pain will be for our ultimate good and for your glory. So Lord, we we submit to you, Holy Spirit, to go deep. For those of us that do not know you at all, non-believers, maybe who have never looked to you for salvation by grace, I pray that you would save them in their seat right now. That for the first time in their life, they would realize that you have done everything required of them. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit. Heal our broken hearts. Make us see Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.